0: Bond, an intelligence officer in the secret intelligence service commonly known as, what, M-I-M-16. Watching Bond, I uh, grew up uh, doing that, uh, watching Sean Connery and uh, all those different guys play Bond. And I just, I think my favorite part of those Bond movies back in the day was Q. Because he would show up with all those gadgets, right? I know they had different people playing Q throughout the years, but uh, I, I, was, I was thinking back through some of the gadgets that I remembered, and then I saw this really crazy list that just made me laugh because I was going back through some of the movies in my mind about those different gadgets, uh, like um, the uh, Spy Umbrella and the, uh, umbre- and the uh, Bagpipe Flamethrower. Um, he had fake fingerprints, the wrist mounted dart gun, a jetpack, and here's one of my favorite ones. You ready for this one? At one point early on in the Bond movies, he had a mobile phone. <laughs> so ahead of his time. Bond was so cool, so confident, so slick, not unlike my little Lindley, who's three. As a matter of fact, I think that she would be a great James Bond for that reason. Uh, this week, she um, walked up to her younger her, to her younger, youngest brother Levi, who is six, and said, "Levi, I." She goes, uh, "Levi, I love you. Give me a hug." And you know, his heart. I mean, he loves his sister so much, and. He just he he couldn't get there fast enough to get a hug from her. And she reached over and gave him this big hug. And she had a dart gun, right? And she shot him right in the back. (laughs) And after she did it, she pointed her hands up in the air and went, Yeah. What? Smooth. (laughs) Linley P.I. The movies are created to. I, mean, I guess maybe you should be praying for Levi because he was a little crushed. <laughs> um, later on, he was able to laugh. But, uh, you know, I mean, that's just, boy, that's a heartbreaker. The movies uh, are created to believe, right, that we need Bond. We need Bond to rescue us. Uh, we are so incredibly lucky to have Bond. And, uh, and, and you may go, well, Randy, that's, that's great. He's a secret agent. He's also fiction, Randy. Um, uh, true. True. But here's some interesting research, uh, newest research from the Barna Group. We were at a, a short little conference a couple weeks ago in Phoenix, and, and uh, a guy by the name of David Kinnaman, who's written several books on why people don't go to church these days, uh, was doing some uh, presentation for us. And it was, uh, uh, part of his presentation was presenting some of the newest statistics. And uh, it was some statistics specifically about millennials. And uh, one of the ones that really grabbed my attention is that millennials... of millennials believe that they will be famous by the time they're 30. Let that sink in for a minute. 25% believe that they will be famous by the time they're 30. Some of you are going, duh, yeah. You know, I'm a big deal around here. I mean, look at my social media platform I'm building for myself Look at how many people are liking my post and sharing my content. And, uh, and suddenly our culture is traveling deeper and deeper into this self-absorbed, uh, how can I be happy? What do I need? What do I not have yet? You know, I am the star in my own motion picture mentality. And the scary part about that is, it goes completely against, right, biblically, what God has called us to, and who He's called us to be. Because um, what He's called us to be in Scripture is this uh, this, this this called out son and daughter, <coughs> excuse me, of the King, who um, who is just blown away that God loves us and that He wants to use us, and that He wraps His arms around us every day, in spite of everything. You know, I, I'm often praying up here on the stage with the band. Um, and and p- uh, part of my prayer, whether it's a verbalized or just internal, I'm just thinking, wow, God, I just want to be like John the Baptist. And I don't do that enough where he spoke about how he needed to decrease so that God would increase. But, you know, too often what Randy does is he increases and tries to push God away. I think sometimes this perspective of how we should see ourselves is um, echoed in ways in the Bible that might feel, us a little un- feel a little uncomfortable because we don't know the terminology. And so uh, we, we look at words like bondservant that Peter and Paul and James and Jude and John and Moses define themselves as and we go bond. Is that like the same like James Bond? Like what? And it's really very, very different, right? The bond that we just spoke of a moment ago was the everybody needs me. This bond servant, this bond adds servant on the end. And I've got a little definition up on the screen. It says, devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interests. In Deuteronomy 15, 16. Uh, it reads like this, Suppose your servant says, I will not leave you because he loves you and your family and he has done well with you. In that case, take an all and push it through his earlobe into the door. After that, he will be your servant for life. In this, we find the picture of a bond servant. It's a slave that could go free at the end of his six years of servitude. And, and, and many would, but there was the occasion where a slave had been taken care of so very well, the relationship between he and his master had been forged to such an extent that really he didn't want to leave. Maybe he had a hard time earning a living and the room board he had as a slave was better than anything else he'd been able to find for himself. Or maybe, just maybe, he had grown so very comfortable with his master and that household over the last six years that he just didn't want to go. And in that case, the Bible made a way for him to Stay. In a symbolic act, the scriptures state that his master would take him to the doorpost and then place his ear there and then drive a hole through the ear. And once that hole was made, then take a gold earring and place it into that slave's ear. The slave could never go free again. He could also never be sold, though. He would always be with that family. He became more than just a slave. He actually became a servant who was permanently attached, an official member of the family. And at that point, many bond servants then began to be trusted with much more significant things within the family. With the master's affairs. Even though they were still servants, they were considered a part of the family. So you think about it for a minute. I mean, this this picture in the Old Testament, God doesn't waste any of this. He's got this in here for a reason, right? He certainly has this in here. And then New Testament disciples, followers of Christ, calling themselves this for a reason. So you've got this bondservant who is serving the master, trusted with his affairs at a deeper level, a part of the family. And here's the question that we start off with tonight. Does that define you? Did that define you today, this week, this month? Did it define me? Did we wake up this morning and think, wow, God, thank you so much for entrusting me with this small yet vital piece of your affairs here? Thank you for entrusting me with this bank account that I know really is yours. And these family members that I know, God, really are yours. God, thank you for entrusting me with these abilities and skills that you've given. And it is with great joy that I choose to serve and give and love. Is that how we start off, thinking about positionally ourselves in that way with God? And for what purpose? To earn a greater spot in heaven? Maybe to gain more favor with the Father? Uh, I, I wonder if maybe that was at the heart of this expert's question that we now launch into as we look into the book of Luke. Because you see, this expert in the law, he, he asked Jesus, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? and And, as he asked that question um, jesus' response was, "Well, listen, if you'll just make sure that you commit to working the second and fourth with the four and five year olds at nine fifteen in the temple, and also if you could you know just absolutely do not forget this every so often we're going to do a food packing event for for the Gentiles, so make sure you go, and by all means." At least 10%. I mean, you do that, you get eternal life. That's not what he said. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And this man in this encounter was reminded that eternal life is ours, not because, is ours because of the relationship that we can have with God. Not because we do enough. Not because we intrinsically are enough. Notice the second part of the man's response, to love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a contradiction to the first commandment, actually. It is an overflow of the heart, a heart that has been captivated by the love of God. Because I'm captivated by you, God, I desire to love who you love. And you love everyone. Who is surrendered to completely, completely to the God of the universe, someone who is serving the master, trusted with his affairs, a part of the family. The man pushes Jesus a little farther and he says, you know, well, who's my neighbor? <laughs> and Jesus, uh, he says, well, it's uh, whoever lives to your left and your right. No, that's not what he said, right? We don't have all the facts as to why this man wanted clarification, but what we do have in Jesus response is a look into the mission of someone who is fully devoted someone who is a bond servant as those disciples called themselves someone completely surrendered this type of person is defined by what is arguably the best known parable in all of scripture let's look at the passage in context luke 10 25. One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. And the man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Let's pause for a moment. That road, I've been there. I've been on that road as several of us have. And I know many people have been to Israel here in our, in our church. And it's a 17 mile stretch. And it's not the same now as it used to be, but for most of history, That stretch of road has been a really, really dangerous stretch of road in a different way than like the stretch of road that gets from here to Lantana that goes through Double Oak. I mean, that's a whole different... Anyway. This is bad, right? This is awful. And the reason why it's so bad is because robbers would easily be able to hide in strategic places and they would go after people and take their belongings. It was so significant that 100 years before Christ... Uh, Pompey, they 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 uh, they really worked hard to 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 clean it to clean it up to wipe out the robbers during that period. But they came back. As a matter of fact, during the Crusades, uh, the, the, the pilgrims would would travel that road, and, and here's what they ended up doing: they ended up putting an outpost in the very center of that 17 mile stretch to try to give some sense of 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 of, of shelter for those that would travel it continuing on. He's attack, he's, this man is attacked by bandits. Verse 30. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. So let's pause again. This is such a familiar story. Yet, I was reading some commentary about this this week. And you know, in some Jewish texts, there have been found these instructions by or to the Jews of how not to help the sinners, of which they certainly would interpret a Gentile to be. So the priest walks by this guy who is naked and half dead, and he can't tell exactly who he is, right? A little unsure. And here's what's crazy. He gets within four cubits of a Gentile, and he's now unclean. He didn't want to go through all that. But he's just not sure. And you know, since the guy's laying there, presumably, potentially even dead, that's definitely another huge question mark. Because if he gets into contact with a dead, a dead Gentile, now we're not just unclean, we're ceremonially unclean. Now he's unfit to do any priestly duties. You see, he wasn't going to take the chance. He wasn't going to risk it to even see who the guy really was. He had the law on his side His religious predecessors had set the rules up in such a way that he got a pass. And you know, how many of us feel like, you know what, I got a pass. I don't have to deal with that person. Somebody else will. I don't have to look in their direction. Somebody else will take care of that. Matter of fact, I've already lined up my life in such a way that ent- By the way, I mean, we all get a pass, right? Because the federal government's going to take care of everybody. So you see, we don't have to do anything anymore. We can just stay on our road to prosperity and let everybody who has needs be taken in. But you know, it just kind of starts to more and more distance the church from the calling that the church actually has. So he wouldn't help the guy. And you know the 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 temple, the 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 other guy, the, the second guy, the temple assistant. He 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 didn't stop either. And 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 you know some have conjectured that maybe he didn't stop because he noticed maybe he was close enough that he saw the priest didn't stop. And he thought, well, if the priest didn't stop, I'm not stopping. And how often have we been there, right? Well, you know, I can justify anything by seeing what somebody else has or hasn't done. And those around me aren't doing that. So I'm not going to. Verse 33, then a despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. And going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And Which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. And the man replied, The one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, Yes, now go and do the same. I believe this parable Jesus is speaking to to us in invites his followers to live a life of a bondservant that can be described in this way three parts number one a bondservant is one who chooses to follow our king with compassion look at verse 33 again when he saw the man he felt compassion for him this This part of the story reminds me so much of another description of Jesus. If you go to Matthew chapter 9, and he's looking out. Actually, he heals these two blind men and a mute, demon-possessed guy. And the religious crowd criticizes him and accuses him of receiving his powers from the devil. But he continues to teach. And as he continues to teach, in the midst of the religious persecution, he looks out over the crowd. And it describes Jesus in this way, verse 36 when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is filled with compassion for what he saw. He allowed himself to be immersed into a sea of needs. It would have been so easy, right? He's getting all this persecution for what he's been doing. It's like, okay, I'm out, I'm done. I don't need this. But instead, he presses into the situation so much so that he sees what's really there. And the question that I have is, do we see it? Do we really see the need? Do we allow ourselves to see the need? Two words, saw and compassion. Connected with God the Father at such a deep level that he was able to have the Father's heart for what was going on around him. A bondservant is one who chooses to follow our King with compassion and he chooses to do so, second point, see we're moving fast now, he chooses to do so into the mess. Because you see, when we open up our eyes and see the need, that need takes us somewhere and where it takes us is into a messy world. I was reminded of mess today. I was reminded mess, messy, messy kids in the backyard, digging and digging and digging and digging. <laughs> and they walked in and just trailed dirt all over the floor. And I just, it just hit me. You know what? That looks like our world just trails and trails. Last night, the awful experiences in Paris just trails of sin throughout our world. It doesn't take much to see it, does it? A bond servant is one who chooses to follow our king with compassion into the mess. Verse 34, Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. It is doubtful that this man was traveling with some hand sanitizer, rubber gloves, and a little bit of antibacterial liquid. (laughs) You see... I see this man bending down and taking his own garments, right? And wrapping this man's injuries up. And at the end of this whole ordeal, I cannot but think that this Samaritan is dirty and that this man's blood is all over him. Because as he's getting into the mess and helping this guy, he, he's living The example of Christ. He didn't just call 911. He he was 911. So I think the reality of living out this life as a bondservant is that when we do, it is a call to action. It is a call to get messy because people's lives are messy. And whether it's working through a marital challenge in our small group or whether it's walking a high school student through a minefield of temptations, or whether it's literally changing the mess in some diapers back there. We're a messy people. And we're a messy people, redeemed, yes, reconciled, yes, but we're still messy, and God's invited us, the messy ones, to step into other people's messiness and invite them into this reconciliation with the Father. A bondservant is one who chooses to follow our king with compassion. Into the mess, number three, regardless of the cost. Verse 34, then he he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. This stop cost the Samaritan. And again, it cost him in ways that it's hard for us to really comprehend. I mean, yeah, it cost him in time spent and energy and money. But you know, here's the truth. The truth is, and many of you are aware of this because of some Bible history that you may know, but the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews was not good. Jews had considered the Samaritans idol-worshipping, pagan, marrying half-breeds. and in historical documents, we find that it was not so distant in the past. We're talking like '86, aD, like nine, right? 9 A.D, when a group of Samaritans went into the temple court and desecrated it by tossing human remains all over it. You know, the Jews, they, they had not forgotten that. As a matter of fact, they were taught by the temple priest to pray against the Samaritan's eternal salvation. How about that? So a Samaritan being helped on the side of the road... Sure, okay, I mean, that, that, that may be palatable. I mean, you might get a gold star for that. It would have been highlighted, certainly, by how amazing someone would be to stop and actually render aid to the Samaritan. But what happens when the story is completely flipped and Jesus turns the tables on us in this parable and goes, No, 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 wait a minute, hold on a second. You see, the Samaritan is superman. The Samaritan is the one who is the hero, rejected, in need of mercy himself. Not serving out of his own strength, out of who he thinks he is, out of what he thinks he can bring to the table, but as one who recognizes his own weakness and he steps into that messiness. And our calling is also one of jumping into action, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And by the way, we don't see this Samaritan getting written up in the paper. He doesn't win the humanitarian award of the year. We don't find him posting in flowery language his good deed on Facebook or Instagram. This was a selfless act recognized on earth at the time by a half-dead unconscious guy and an innkeeper. And God Almighty. And it cost him. And the possible negative repercussions were huge. Because you see, we know that this guy had cash. We know he w- he, we know this Samaritan had money. So it cost him potentially to even stop. Because it's a dangerous stretch of road. And now this guy who's got money is distracted. And he's down in the dirt dealing with mess. And what is he now? He's a potential target himself. You know, when we get down in people's mess, we become a potential target. Why would you deal with that person? Why would you take time for them? I remember walking into Mission Waco for the first time, and we sat there and, and talked with our with the kids and with our students that were there and with, uh, with everybody around and, and, and Jimmy and Janet Dorrell were giving this this brief uh, uh, in, in informational uh, moment about homelessness to the group and I remember one of the kids was asking well, I don't even really understand why we do this because aren't they all just in it for the money? I mean, aren't they all just... It's really all about the money, isn't it? And I remember um, Jimmy and Janet beginning to talk about this cycle of poverty that people would find themselves in to the point where they could not pull themselves out of it. And that, no, everybody who was on a street corner wasn't in it for a buck, actually... There were mental illnesses and physical ailments and all types of things, physical addictions that are keeping them wound down in this spiral. And the light went on in our kids' heads and hearts. They began to see maybe, just maybe, that, um, you know what? I've made fun of a lot of people who have tried to help them in the past. But that's not what I'm called to do. Our calling is also one of jumping into action. But this Samaritan, when he did it, not only was there potential repercussion in that respect, but there was also the potential repercussion of just taking him to the end. Can you imagine? I mean, really. The Samaritan is despised. He takes him to a Jewish innkeeper. What do you think they're thinking? Well, yeah, you beat the guy up and now you feel bad about it. So you bring him in here because you're concerned the law's going to be after you, because the judicial system's going to come down on you, because now he's almost dead. I mean, I, I'm doubting that they would have thought the best of the Samaritan. Let's put it that way. And so he opens himself up to all kinds of criticism, right? The list could go on and on and on and on about how much this action cost him. But a bondservant is one who chooses to follow our king with compassion into the mess, regardless of the cost. A few final thoughts in light of the Samaritan story. What keeps us from this life? Three words. First word I've got for us tonight is convenience. Convenience. I think convenience is a barrier that we can allow to keep us from living the life of a bond servant let me check my schedule let me make sure my budget is is right you know if, if all of these things are convenient and if i get a lot of affirmation i mean after all i'm not really needed i mean there's an awful lot of people who are going to do that feed the hunger thing and i somebody's going to take care of me. again i mean the government's going to do it right I mean, isn't that what the pastors are paid for? I mean, if they don't do it, I mean, why are we even paying these pastors? Aren't they supposed to be doing stuff like that, taking care of people who have needs? They deal with all the messy stuff, and 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 then after they deal with all the messy stuff, then we pay those pastors to make sure that they that, that, that they, they they show us a good time, you know, that they put on some really fun events and and, and create some real neat worshipful moments for for us at at our at, at our at our little. Uh, church country club thing we got going on here. So I think the the staff should take care of that. And you know, that that may not be your reality, but that's the reality of a lot of church-going followers in our nation. But the true reality is that God has called each one of us, and not only does God call us His children, but He's given us all some responsibilities to go along with it. And He says, listen, you are called to serve. You are called to be a bondservant. And wow, it's hard to understand how it is that only 20% of the people in a congregation give financially or serve faithfully. How is it that they do 80% of the work? I don't get that. Bond-servant mentality, I serve not because God needs me or because I feel guilty or because it makes me feel good, but because I love him and I want to worship him and I want to obey him because when I know my life is aligned with his, then I am doing what he created me to do and be. Mother Teresa, a Catholic nun who served the poor and dying in India by establishing homes and hospitals where they could come to die with dignity. Famous words of Mother Teresa. Find your own Calcutta. Are you living in that Calcutta today? Do you even know where to step and open your eyes? Second word, irrelevance. I think the church is moving along just fine without me. You see, I'm just not really needed. This one kind of attaches to the first one, doesn't it? It, it, it ignores scriptures that call us all into service. And I think leech leaders, unfortunately, perpetuate this problem. And I've talked about this before. You know, we, 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 and I say leaders, both paid and volunteer, will tend to do something and not invite somebody else to do it along with us because we think probably nobody's going to do it as good as us. Matter of fact, if I don't do it, then what am I going to do? And so the church is filled with people who do serve, but who are quite content to just keep hold of that one position because they don't know what they would do if they didn't do it. I think as we look at those words, uh, you know, the, 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 the truth is leaders should be constantly looking for ways to replicate ourselves in ministry, to build the team bigger and bigger and bigger. Why? Well, because eventually, what happens? Whether you're a pastor, whether you're a volunteer, you know what will happen? Especially around the church. You give and 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 you give and, you give and, you, and then you just kind of burn out. Or you get cynical. Or you get angry. Or you just get weak and fall to temptation and fade away. Another potential barrier, last one, ambivalence. This is indecision about God, about who He is in our lives. And the question is Is He our King? Are we zeroed in on His heart for the world? When I see Jesus, is my mind just captivated by Him having compassion for the world and then saying, Okay, now I've got work for you to do, Randy, follow me, open your eyes. And it's not because we're God's secret weapon. It's not because we're the best gadget Q has in the arsenal. No. It's because we're called to follow this king who is going to give us everything that we need in the midst of our own messiness. What if the good Samaritan had passed passed by Then what? <laughs> God doesn't need us. He doesn't. He is master and lord and king, and He chooses to use us. But I'm, I'm convinced that that Samaritan would have missed an opportunity to find God in the mix. I'm not sure what would have happened. I don't know how that guy's needs would or wouldn't have been met. I know that our God is sovereign. But I know that Samaritan would have missed a God moment because he didn't stop. So where do we start? Maybe it's going to the doorpost and allowing God to pierce our ear and say, yeah, you know what? My heart is supposed to be breaking for what breaks yours, God. It is. It is. Open my eyes to the needs around me. And then God, help me to roll up my sleeves. Be the God of my wallet and my time and my phone and my family. So what does that look like realistically? I I wrote down a list here. I said things like, uh, how, how do I love my neighbor? Maybe you invite someone to share a meal with you. Whether they live next door to you or not. Maybe you practice random acts of kindness, sacrifice for others, slow down enough to engage people and really listen and look at them in the eye and hear what they have to say and listen to their story and then pray for them, not telling you them that, that you will pray for them, but taking that moment to actually pray for them. Use your connections and background to help someone. Invite someone into your small group. Be a volunteer at CCA. Sign up for Feed the Hunger. Give. I I don't know if you knew this or not, but um, our our church supports some missionaries named David and Karen Rhodes. They're in Belize. They serve in the southern part of Belize. We do family mission trips there each year. Only 10% of the country's resources go to that southern part of Belize, and less than 10% of any missionary efforts in the entire country go there. And about two years ago, our church helped purchase a small camp on a river near David and Karen in the middle of nowhere in Belize. And you know what they do with that? (laughs) They find women who have been battered and abused and sexually molested and invite them to stay there in a safe house, refuge place to find hope and healing and restoration. And you know what? When you give, you support that ministry and you become the hands and feet of Jesus to the one on the side of the road in Belize who feels discarded and helpless and hopeless. Serve somewhere on the weekend. Is it convenient? Nope. Nope. Come back and serve on Sunday. Serve half on Sunday, half on Saturday of the month. Is that easy? Nope. Is it going to cost you? Yep. (laughs) And God is saying, child of mine whom I see and love and throw amazing parties for and give the best gifts to, I haven't finished inviting people to the party. Will you join me? Will you be a bondservant who follows me with compassion, eyes wide open, into the mess, regardless of the cost? Let's pray. Father, thanks for reminding us of your heart. And God, I know that we are so very much a mess. And yet, God, you've met us. And so, God, remind us of what you've done for us so that we might be who you've called us to be for a lost and dying world. And God, we know a part of that lost and dying world are those who were at a concert venue and a stadium and a sidewalk cafe last night in Paris. And Father, we pray that in the midst of all of that, people might find you. That God, even in what terrorists mean for evil, you would redeem for good, for eternity, for your glory. And God, we pray for strengthened hearts of believers in that city tonight. And God, will you just give us as well our marching orders as we leave this place and as we are reminded in music and in visual representation again of the story. Will you watch the screen with us?